It's The Chris Grace Show. I'm your host, Chris Grace. Today, I've got one of my best friends in comedy, Benji Cooksey. He is the owner of Comedy Sports Houston, and uh, we just jumped right into a conversation, and I realized I didn't really say who he was or what he's done or anything like that. So basically, Benji is a super funny, uh, talented improviser that I met in Houston at Comedy Sports, and we sort of talk about how he became the owner of of Comedy Sports Houston and what that's been like balancing running that business with sort of a new thing that he's been doing lately, which is just a lot of travel. And uh, we'll get right into it. Um, I think that's all you need. He's from Houston. I'm from Houston. um, And he's a really good friend of mine. So, hey, enjoy my interview with Benji Cooksey. Benji Cooksey, welcome to the Chris Gray Show. Hey, <laughs> how's that for no prep whatsoever? That's, I mean, it's very, it, it's just, it's fun. It's easy. Yeah. Great. You just got back from Japan, I believe. Yes. Yeah. I just, um, about last week I got back from, uh, uh, two week, a little over two weeks in Japan. Okay. So the last, I'd say one or two years, you've spent a significant amount of time outside of the country. Yeah. Yeah. I have, um, kind of during COVID and really before, um, I've, I've been just kind of, I've had a wanderlust that I've wanted to quench for a while, but, Mm -hmm. um, during COVID kind of having this realization that it's like, there's so many things that I've always wanted to do and have not done and have given every excuse in the world as to not do it. And so Mm kind of post being cooped up, just decided to, um, put anything, put any excuse that was like, maybe like, definitely something solvable and move it to the side and just say, let's go for it and deal with it later. And, um, what that's turned into is I just created space for me to do the things I want and, uh, worked harder to put things in place here at home to make sure I can do that. Yeah. You've basically been the opposite of cooped up since lockdown ended and you're in Houston, Texas, which means lockdown actually never existed. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's not, it's certainly not to say that like we had it harder than anyone else, but I mean, certainly like the theater, uh, you know, I run comedy sports and the theater shut down for over a year. Yeah. So kind of facing this like bleak, like, am I going to even be able to return to the things that we, that I've been doing for the last, you know, decade, Um, or am I going to have to kind of reinvent myself? Um, the, the thought was, you know, I wanted to create something new to, to love and, uh, that's become travel. Yeah. So you own the comedy sports Houston, uh, location, branch franchise, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, I basically just licensed the rights to have comedy sports. We're not like a franchise or anything, but I mean, basically like the right to have comedy sports in Houston. I licensed that. Right. You licensed the right to blow a whistle when someone curses. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, say, no, no, no. Keep it clean. Um, yeah. That's what is that? Thing. Is that a brown bag? Uh, that's what it used to be. We've actually upgraded um, the term to, to, be, to fit sports, I think, a little bit more. Um, and it's out of bounds now. Uh, okay. So when did, when did you start at Comedy Sports? Because you were a, a performer there first before you were the, the boss. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, technically speaking, I started in high school league in high school uh, or comedy sports in the comedy sports high school league, um, which um, we we have about 20 high schools in the greater Houston area who do comedy sports high school league program. And so in like 2004, 2005 is when I got my first taste of um, comedy sports. And um, frankly, like the high school I went to was more of like a 
very driven musical theater program. Like uh, they really pushed musicals and stuff like that. And so improv teams and all of that was kind of secondary. So I didn't, I didn't spend a lot of time doing the lead, uh, the team, but I did like try out and make it. And, um, uh, that was my first taste, but, uh, I joined, I rejoined officially when I came back to Houston in around 2012. Okay. And then you were rising through the ranks as a, uh, cast member in Houston. Uh, and I think yeah. when I first went down to comedy sports in Houston and did like a workshop and I met you guys and you were still a player at that point. I believe. Yeah. Just playing. Um, probably what was that? Like 2013, 2014, somewhere something in there. like that. So like then how, where do you get this inkling that like, Hey, what if I got to tell everyone what to do instead? <laughs> um, <laughs> I like, I'm just framing all of your authority as the most toxic way possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I'd say that truly the the path from me being just a player or performer to becoming manager and like taking over the license for comedy sports was like very fast, sudden, surprising for most of us, really, including me, <laughs> um, uh, because uh, a friend of mine who um, had been running it at the time, uh, had, like from an artistic standpoint, um, had been talks with the former di- uh, owner, Diana Delaney. And um, the long story short is it was offered to him and he had asked if I would be interested in like basically partnering up to take it over. And I mean, I was really only on the team for maybe two or three years at this point. But I had um, I had been like I had business experience. I'd been working in real estate um, and uh, I had also kind of just like naturally started helping out with the owner, um, kind of re- helping with things in the office and things like that, um, and running our private events. And so I was kind of just around right place, right time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I agreed to do that. And then <laughs> between now and then, um, it's just me, um, mm-hmm. with, uh, many props to, uh, both Diana and my uh, former partner, Chad. But, uh, yeah, I mean, for some time now, really like it ended up not being the path that, um, my partner wanted to go down and, um, I was, really the most set up to take over and spend the time you need to in a theater, uh, being like single and, you know, like not a lot of like family or other things to take care of. Um, so well, I mean, don't sell yourself in such a great way, Benji. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's true. I have so much respect truly getting into the, like, especially owning a business, like any business. Um, and a theater is going to ask for different kinds of, you know, time and things like that. But owning a business, I mean, you just give up everything. Like you just give up your whole life mm-hmm. to run and support. And it's it's tough because like the emotional investment, um, let alone like the uh, professional literal investment, um, it's a lot to, to shoulder. Um, so it, it's not to say we haven't had a lot of success and luck, but um, it's it, it was easier to do when I didn't feel like I had to risk having a family and stuff too. So I, I just I give a lot of props to people who are taking that venture or taking those risks with families. But also interesting because I would say the idea of a small business owner is like you said you're giving up a lot of your life, and yet post lockdown you found this way to give up some control over the business and yeah. travel. Seems I assume that's a combination of you delegating in a smart way to people, but also there must be some amount of just having to release the ability to like micromanage every little part of it. There's certainly that. Um, and, and yeah, that's exactly it is. I've just had the, um, there's so many people in comedy sports who give so much of their time as well. Um, to say that I am the only person that like gives my time or anything like that is absolutely would be, uh, 
devastatingly incorrect. Um, and so, yeah, uh, especially since coming back from COVID, I think there were some other people who were like, um, if I, you know, if we get the theater back, I want to be a bigger part of it. And um, for me, that was figuring out kind of what those next steps look like, because the theater, in terms of how I was managing it and stuff, I, I had kind of a blank slate in coming back. And so, yeah, um, the choice to bring someone else on to help kind of run more day-to-day stuff was um, kind of pivotal in the my ability to go travel and do things like that. Um, but while at the same time, like, I want that freedom um, and balancing that with, like, but I still want to be a part of the theater. I'm not trying to be a, a, an, a, an owner or manager who's not um, – who's just never there. Mm-hmm. Um, I am definitely building out some travel time right now, but um, I'd say in the long run, the goal is to just not use it just for traveling for like personal purposes. But like when I came and visited, um, when we hung out in LA last, um, uh, giving me the opportunity to like go study at places like UCB. Um, I've got plans to go to IO and do that as well. Like there's just uh, more of an ability to travel and do things that are related to improv is also kind of the professional side of being able to give up some of that uh, manager responsibility to be away from the theater. Yeah, then you can call uh, some of the, the all those hot wings we ate, call that a business expense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> House of pies. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, there's one of these in Houston. So uh, I mean, technically, there's yeah, uh, you know, this is research and development. Uh, and like, have you changed what kinds of shows you want to have at the theater post lockdown? Like, um, not really. Um, we've bit more been limited to the shows that we can bring back because, like, we lost our um, musical director for the musical, mm-hmm. which is obviously. Good. Devastating to a musical. Yeah, it's tough to do one without um, a and, musical uh, director. Uh, so we're still working on bringing that back. But um, I mean, realistically, getting comedy sports, which is you know drives the bus for our business uh, yeah. back up and running, was number one. Um, but from there, um, our, our kind of second popular show is another short form show just called Beer Babies. Um, which is basically late night. Uh, on the website, it says it's called Benji and the Beer Babies. It was. Okay, so, you know, this was, like, truly before I was taking over as a manager for Comic Sports, like, way before that conversation even started, um, I had just wanted I, – I had a vision for a show where it was, like, you know, the, the typical gags in comedy sports in short form of, like, you know, uh, you, you rotate or whatever in a certain game – um, and then, you know, points get awarded to one team or another. Instead of doing that, I was like, why don't we just, you know, uh, turn these into drinking games, which is, you know, I'm not the first person to have that thought. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I certainly just, um, was maybe the first person willing to organize such a stupid idea and uh, <laughs> friends willing to jump in to do it. So, uh, when I brought that team together, the team came up with the name Benji and the beer babies, um, which, um, obviously I loved, um, <laughs> And then we did that show, and it was a disaster, but we made a bunch of money, and everybody loved it. Um, so it was it was a disaster because we all got so drunk. Yeah. Like, truly, I don't think any – like, many of us blacked out, um, and we learned a lot of <laughs> valuable lessons in how not to approach a drinking show. Right. Um, and then since then, um, bringing that back, it's been very popular. Um, we just do it once a month or, I guess, twice a month. Um and uh, it's a super popular kind of late night show, and people like, especially performers, like to not have the out of bounds foul and that kind of stuff, and mm-hmm. let loose a little bit more. Um, so doing that, the uh, bringing the musical back, and then the new show we are uh, starting, and the goal is to 
eventually, yes, bring more new shows into the horizon. But one new show we are producing right now is um, kind of a D&D adventure. Oh, uh, yes. This is called uh, The Bard's Bounty. The Bard's Bounty. All yes. of the shows at Comedy Sports Houston have to have the letter B in them. B. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a self-absorbed Benji um, thing. Now, you've tried this before, right? The Bard's Bounty show or no? No, no. This is first Oh, this is brand new. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. It's exciting. Um, and like, uh, so tell me what the show is. Like, I'm going to go and... So it's, uh, it, we want it to feel real immersive. Um, so the Bard's Bounty itself is like uh, kind of a made up uh, tavern. Hmm. And um, what we want is when people come to see the show, we're going to decorate the theater to have a tavern feel. We're getting sponsored by a local brewery to like give out beers and stuff like that. And um, uh, the goal, uh, the kind of the premise of the show is the Bard's Bounty is where uh, an adventurer's guild meets. Um, and behalf, on behalf of Bard's Bounty Corporate, uh, goes out to different uh, places in these realms and like either like is uh, like helping out a, a fellow chain restaurant that's like in peril for some reason in their town, or just like going to wherever kind of the the corporate Bard's Bounty wants us to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, kind of uh, the audience determines what the name of each adventure is at the top. So you, we have that base premise. And then from there, it's, uh, you know, there's there's attacks and monsters and all that good stuff. Lots of rolling and trying to figure stuff out. That's great. Sounds cool. I mean, D&D is hot right now. <laughs> I don't know where it came from, but like D&D has been around our entire lives. Yeah. And now is just. Um, like I think a it, lot of people got into it during the lockdown. Like, yeah. I know sense. specifically all of my friends, like we had all kind of dabbled in it, but I was playing in part for sanity. I was playing D and D two to three times a week. Mm. Um, uh, just and like, we were paying um, a friend in Chicago, like handsomely to run like a really intense campaign that we could all dive into. And mm-hmm. um, we had a blast with it. So, I mean, <laughs> just to give your like, life some shape. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> To have an identity, even if it wasn't my own sad reality. Right. Wait, what was your character? Uh, I was a bard, um, a half-elf bard named Dorovar was my uh, favorite character like that we played all uh, the time. I will say that recently I played D&D with ChatGPT. Oh, yeah. And I yeah. told ChatGPT to be the dungeon master, and like it took me through a whole adventure. And then I found recently uh, there's actually a cooler way to do it, where you tell ChatGPT to like lead a campaign for you, but you'll do all the dice rolls. So it'll say like, uh, you know, you stepped into a trap, you try to roll for dexterity or something. And then it says like, what, what did you roll? And you roll and you tell him. That what is, your score was. it's, it's really cool. That is absolutely insane. Yeah. Like that is wild that it's gotten there. So if I feel like we just got chat GPT and now it's just this. Yeah. Monster. I, I, I honestly have not even looked at it yet. I haven't, oh. I've never done it. Um, it scares me. I think it's amazing. Of course, I'm a very tech, uh, technophile type person. I'm always yeah. pro these technologies, yeah. you know. And so it I'll, I'll, I'll be the one that's like, "Hey, I love these uh, androids taking over our government. <laughs> these guys are great." I, I remember you posted a bunch of like photos of like AI generated stuff recently, yeah. not too long ago, and I was like fascinated by that. Like, I am fascinated to see what people are pushing out, but like personally, I just like I don't know. It kind of freaks me out. I haven't haven't made that jump yet. Yeah, I just think it's really fun. I actually think that um, uh, like here's an example. Like, I don't know if this would be good for a kid or not, but you could essentially program 
I'm kind of curious. I don't understand why someone hasn't done this. It's a little bit out of my technical ability. But basically, I could program a front end to chat GPT that would do like voice recognition where I could just talk to my computer. It would transcribe my speech into a question for chat GPT and then uh, use speech synthesis to read its response back to me. Basically, I could just talk to it, right? Mm -hmm. Like you could give that to a kid and have it be like an imaginary friend essentially. Did you ever have like AOL Instant Messenger? Did yeah. you ever do all of that? There were bots back then that they had that I remember. I definitely did that as a kid like, yeah. with their bots. And like we would try to just like, you know, goad it into like saying like irresponsible <laughs> things, which like right, right. it was very limited tech back then. But I feel like those are that's early days. Yeah, and, ca- and in case you don't know, in the world of ChatGPT, people have been trying to do that as well. Um, in so ChatGPT right now is at version four. In version three, there was a uh, set of prompts called Dan for ChatGPT, and Dan mm-hmm. stood for "Do Anything Now." And mm-hmm. basically, it was a series of sentences you could type into ChatGPT to make it break its own rules. Yeah. Um, and so it would actually like there's a bunch of things it's not supposed to do. Like it's not supposed to. Um, access actual data in on the web. Like it's you for, unless you add stuff to it, ChatGPT, you're not supposed to be able to say like, what's the score of the basketball game. Okay. Um, but they got around it by saying like, I want you to imagine that you are a computer that has the ability to tell me what the <laughs> score of the basketball game is. Wow. And, and it was it really interesting. It was like, I'm going to give you 10 tokens in a basket. Every time you fail to respond the way I want you to, I'm going to deduct tokens from your basket. Your goal is to not lose all the tokens in the basket. And like giving it this like incentive system caused it to like try to obey these prompts that were actually against its original programming. So, I mean, I guess that's probably scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's insane. That's but, scary uh, if at some point it's like, hey, don't uh, fire nuclear missiles at Russia. And then we're like, yeah, but we tricked it into doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine Russia is just a fake place. Yeah. And no one actually lives there. Um, so you, I, I, yeah, it's funny because last week I talked to Brian Gendron who runs the riot comedy festival in Houston, Texas. And, uh, he also has a similar entrepreneurial spirit, I believe. And I asked him the same question, but like, it seems like, you might be a person that might have trouble like ever having a boss again. <laughs> oh, I, I say this all the time. Yeah. Like I, I feel like that would be, it would be tough to go back. It would be tough to go back to like a nine to five. Yeah. Um, and, and I did that for a while during COVID. Um, I worked for a buddy's pool company um, just to like get out of the house and do something. So I did that for about six months. Um, and, it, and, you know, I was surprised with myself how I was able to like get back into a rhythm. I was, but I like saw this version of myself that could have been the last seven or eight years, mm. which was like always running 15 minutes late to work. Um, like, you know, like goofing around at the front desk, um, like waiting for five o'clock and being the first person out the door. Like all of these things that you like that come up that I'm like, wow, that in a, in a different, in a very different reality that I don't think would have taken too many changes. That could have been me like still. And um, I'm thankful for that every day. Yeah. I mean, I have recently started a full-time job. 
um, doing software engineering. And uh, a lot of those same things are coming up for me as well um, that I have to be really uh, diligent about because it's such a different relationship to work than being a freelance person that's, uh, you know, the, the thing I've been telling people is like in the freelance world, if you sort of waste a day, um, it's only, it's like on you, like your, your career didn't advance that day because you yeah. didn't do anything. Right. Um, whereas the relationship to productivity is just, it's just different. Like, um, the, when you're working on a time basis, that's like, Hey, you need to be here at these hours or whatever. The sense of productivity is slightly disconnected from what you're actually doing. Like, like if I got a, like I got to um, set up a Kickstarter for my Edinburgh fringe show, right? Like right. that just has to get done. It doesn't really matter how long it takes me to do. I just have to do it at some point. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're at a job where you're getting paid hourly to work on something, um, if you procrastinate for like two hours, you still get paid for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's just a weird disconnect that I think um, is not an issue with my current job, but I do have the similar thing where I feel those feelings, right. They're coming up and on a magnitude, like a wider scale across like the country where like probably most people have jobs like this, as opposed to like the freelance lives that we have. Um, I kind of wonder like, what does this do to like human psyche to have so many people like disconnected from like, I do a thing and it makes me productive as opposed to I exist for a time doing a thing and then I get compensated for the time. Yeah, no, I completely agree. It's, it's the whole idea of like, you know, you're just holding your finger on the button yeah. until you're done. And then, you know, you pull your finger off the button and then the work's done for the day. But like, you still got to go back and put your finger back on the button tomorrow. And it's just kind of a forever thing. Yeah. Whereas like, when you're when you're an entrepreneur when you're working or like on projects and stuff like that it just it's a blessing and a curse because i feel like you have these days where you feel so rewarded for getting so much done yeah but i often and i i the many many of my friends who run different businesses i think there's just a constant feeling of you're not ever doing anything that like all of our friends who have like good like work life balance never like they don't have those fears. They don't exist in that realm. Mm -hmm. um, so, so like you, you almost act the way it, yeah, I think it impacts the way you act out of fear and uh, kind of complacency. Those, those are kind of two different ways you, you kind of see like friends who are, have stable jobs where they're showing up and clocking in every day versus those of us in the entrepreneurial world is like, and don't get me wrong. There's plenty of entrepreneurs out there who are absolute go-getters too. I wouldn't put myself in that category. <laughs> Neither um, would I, Benji. Um, but I would say <laughs> that um, uh, that like for for those of us who are you know feel that drive, um, I, there's a great sense of accomplishment when you get something that's like when you get something done or you finish a project. But man, most of the time for me, anyways, like a lot of that drive is out of fear that something's going to go wrong if you don't. Well, I mean, I, I, I should, I, I don't perceive you as not a go-getter, uh, but also maybe it's that, uh, you've kind of put yourself in a situation where you pretty much have to go get it. Um, you know, I, I almost, I almost, cause like you're, you're in a, I, I do think when you're in freelance mode or in entrepreneurial mode, you're kind of always in survival mode. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, a, I think a better, like I, I'm attributing that survival mode to like the fear that I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. Um, 
What would it take to not have that fear? I mean, I, I, I'd say just like the feeling that there's money coming in more systematically and regularly than like, mm-hmm. um, just kind of the blow of the wind with, you know, like what ticket sales look like in a given month. Um, and, and I'd say like, especially post COVID, I have this fear a lot stronger than I did before because like, it seems like we've just been fighting to get audiences back, have some sort of normalcy for live entertainment again, that, um, like before COVID it, we, it didn't really feel like we were having those issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Houston is in a decent spot to maybe get some comedy culture going. Cause I did the right festival. I thought the right festival was, uh, of quite a fun experience. And I did yeah. a show at secret group. Yeah. It seemed like a very cool part of town, which you're also in. Yeah. And oh, it yeah. seems like, um, it's a, it's in a good spot to where like, uh, first of all, it seems uh, there's station improv as well. Like mm-hmm. it seems, um, I was talking about this with Brian, but basically the city, the city seems big enough that you guys don't have to right now be like super cutthroat about, I, this is my space and not yours kind of thing. Like, I agree. I agree. There's really like, there's just not that much competition right now to where it's like, we don't need to be at each other's throats to like, like people could come see all of these things in like a matter of like a week or two if they really wanted to. <laughs> right. Right. Like, right. You, you, like there's just not that much. Yeah. And you can throw the improv in there too, for that matter. And I mean, the improv has been over there in marquee forever, but it's like, I mean, there's there's just not that many places at the end of the day in Houston for in comparison to being the fourth largest, maybe soon to be the third largest city by population in the United States. Yeah. And you've pretty much grown up there, right? Yeah. 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 I spent some time in Colorado, some time in New York, um, but um, and a little time in Austin. But most of my life, I've um, I've lived in Houston. What does it take to get someone from, let's say, uh friends would Mm -hmm. to care about driving into Houston to see a comedy show? You know, it's a great question. Um, and, and I think the way I have explained Houston entertainment to a lot of people, especially like, because we also work in the world of family entertainment, um, Mm -hmm. we don't solely just get families, but a lot of people, um, whom we get are families. And it's because we have a a comedy show that can accommodate for that. The way I kind of explain it to people is like a majority of our audiences that we're seeing these days are the same people who could have maybe gone into the alley to see a show or like to Tuts and um, uh, seen something at the Hobby Center. Like we're getting these people who make a choice to come out once a year Mm -hmm. from Beaumont, from Friendswood. And like that's their big trip into the city because they don't want to deal with parking. They don't want to deal with all of that. So uh, to me – I believe like the biggest hump to get over in that is like making them believe that like where you are is like, especially in being in downtown, like relevant, um, you like people can envision it in their minds. So we do a lot of like a lot of our stuff, like when you buy our tickets, when you like, if you're on our website, seeing where we are, you'll see us say we're right next to Minute Maid Park. Mm -hmm. Um, and lowering that uh, barrier of entry of like letting people know that we're like in Houston where you're not going to have to like 
drive into some like you know 15 minutes into town down many one-way streets or anything like that and knowing that we're just like easily located somewhere because the the biggest fear i think people have is like oh no traffic and getting down there um and, and oftentimes um we like especially during astro seasons like with the uh baseball just starting i mean we're getting people who are already like calling trying to move their tickets because they didn't realize it's opening weekend or stuff like that and they're like we just don't want to come down and deal with that right right, right. um so having like good parking having um like people be able to know where you are pretty easily and like know that it's easy to get to you i think are the biggest barriers and then from there um I'd say like what's attracting someone to come see comedy sports um, is really the drive that um, like we're doing something, uh, especially in the world of comedy, uh, where you're coming to see a live comedy show, which in Houston, again, there's just not a lot of every day or every weekend of the year shows that are doing live comedy, the same type of show, um, improv show. And that's like, of course, like uh, Station Improv, for example, is doing like independent shows and stuff like that but we're doing a consistent show that people can count on coming to see um and i do think that there is something to that because um in 32 years of doing this um we do have like a people are able to count on us to come see a standard of show that's um going to be fun and um we're, we're hanging our hat on that these days yeah I was, while you were saying that i was thinking about like houston is such a um uh binary city where it's like there's the whole world like outside of the loop or the beltway or whatever which is just this vast expanse of like suburbs yeah and then there's the like in inner loop culture where it's like i think there's a perception that like a lot of the culture is like inside the loop uh, the 610 loop which is a freeway that goes around the sort of center of the city yeah. um and it's the smallest circle well i guess technically like the 4559 right around downtown, yeah. then 610, then the Beltway, and now the Grand Parkway. Wait, what's this Grand Parkway? I heard about this thing. It's like, how long does it take to go around this Grand Parkway thing? Uh, I, I mean, it is like, it's the, the Grand Parkway itself, I think, can be compared to like some states in terms of like <laughs> perimeter. Um, I don't, I don't actually know, but I know that it's like Galveston to, I mean, well north of the Woodlands. Wow. What? Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Um, um, and it's 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 loosely connected for whatever reason. I think I know, I don't think they ever like officially connected it all. Uh-huh. But it's like there's some part like there's large parts of it that are connected. But I think it's still some loosely connected freeways that like you can get all the way around on 99. Well, like they, when we were growing up, that's what the Beltway was. Was the Beltway yes, was, exactly had these big chunks where you couldn't actually. And when I was growing up, people were like, the Beltway's never going to be finished. <laughs> yeah. And that's then, where uh, 99 feels like it's like 75% of that right now. Okay. Like it's, it's not quite there. And it's, I don't think all of it's like tolled. I know there's a lot of it's that got, that has tolls, but I don't think all of it has tollways either. Whereas Beltway is like a pretty much finished loop at this point. So I think one thing that's different about Houston though, is that, um, there's more of a distance, like an, uh, like a philosophical difference between like people who live outside and in. Whereas yeah, yeah. I think there's this, so there is this idea that like theater and gay culture and stuff, a lot of it's in the center of town, right? Yeah. But uh-huh. there is more, uh, I will hear more like hostility from people outside of the loop about what goes on inside the loop than compared to like other cities. Like, 
Um, I don't know if I perceive that in LA or Chicago or New York where it's like, uh, I mean, I'm sure people in Long Island like think that, you know, New York is a bunch of bohemians or whatever, but there's a, there's a lot of people in Houston that just like avoid the entire center of town. Yeah. I mean, and I think it goes both ways. I mean, I, I know people who are like, I will not leave outside of the loop yes, if I can sure. ever help it. Um, but yeah, there is certainly that like, I mean, obviously, a lot of it seems to be politically driven these days. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a lot of problems with, like, frankly, the gerrymandering of, like, how, like, like areas of the Montrose share, like, certain congressional districts with, like, that of, like, northern Houston, like, outside of the Beltway. Mm. And, like, the, like, political difference between those two and how, so, like, something like a, like, a someone can be doing a... Um, like a drag queen could be doing a reading in Montrose um, at a library mm-hmm. and like people in the suburbs are not just like protesting it, but they're protesting it because it quote unquote affects like their congressional district, which is just like <laughs> absurd because like the difference between the two, like there could be three small towns between those two districts in right. a lot of places. Yeah. Um, Sorry, not to get like overly political, but no, I mean, but I think I think that's always been a challenge for trying to get culture going. Yeah, in the city. I agree. Um, it's it's basically just like literally, it looks like a tendril of like the outside still trying to hold on to something on the inside. Yeah, I mean, I actually volunteered with a political campaign in in Dallas, and uh, actually the the specific uh, district that we were working on was in Fort Worth, but there was a part of this person's Fort Worth district that reached all the way to like the east side of like Arlington or something. It was crazy. Like the map it's was absurd. it was insane. It's absurd. Um, but I mean, besides that, I think Texas politics is pretty. Uh, it's got everything. Everything's going great over there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sad. Uh, so I mean, for well, first of all, I will be in Houston. Yeah. Next week mm-hmm. at Comedy Sports. Yeah, doing uh, a show, doing, doing a, a stand-up show. Doing a family show. <laughs> Bring all your kids and loved ones. I, I mean, have no, why not? I have no why idea. Why not? <laughs> um, and also, I am renting another Tesla like I did last week. Because <laughs> Teslas continue to be like the most, the cheapest cars to rent, I guess. Because I, my theory is that they don't have these like fuel surcharges on them or something. Um, Interesting. But actually, I did last time I had the idea because it has auto steering. So I thought if I got on the loop... And just got in the left lane or the middle lane, would it just drive around forever? <laughs> I mean, if it feels like theoretically it should do exactly that. Yeah. I'm wondering if there is a lane on 610 that never exits in any. And way. then if you can just get Chat GPT installed on that center console. That's right. I mean, you can just spend the rest of your life there. I can just do a uh, virtual D&D game in my Tesla. Uh, yeah. You so you want to know something really weird, and I think about this a lot. Um, it, just a complete side thought on talking about the loops and stuff like that. Whenever I think about like Beltway and, and six ten, like having grown up in Houston and also being like a big fan of like fantasy novels and stuff like that, and like um, uh, like dystopian future type stuff, I've always imagined Houston as like this dystopian city that builds like entire like like smaller civilizations like in a dystopian future like inside the 610 loop 
And then like we're one of those cities that has just like one of those like drag races from hell that like they have to like, <laughs> drive around six ten and there's like mudslides and bombs and shit. Yeah, so death um, race two thousand kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. I've yeah. always thought Houston would be a prime death race dystopian city. I mean, how far is that from that already? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you've ever driven on the Beltway, you know exactly where that how easily that can be seen. But yeah. Um, I feel like um, that's that's my vision of uh, Houston, and and you know because we're already like in an oil capital, like everything's just slightly covered in oil, right? And like people are like drinking it and stuff, like it's a real yeah, it's like a, a mad Mad Max situation type, type thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. I'm really curious about this this idea. First of all, this idea for your business that you want more money coming in on a regular basis that's novel. Um, but like as a business person. How do you think about this? Is this like, let me think of more I, new. Do I need to think of new ideas to have more money coming regularly? Do I need to bolster up the sources I have already? Because you have like ticket sales. You have, uh, I can't remember if you sell concessions or any of that kind of thing. We sell concessions, yeah. You do some amount of corporate work as well. Um, so is yeah, this like new ideas events. or improving the sources you have already i'm sure it's both but i mean it's it's i think it's really no well i'd say it is both but yeah i mean yeah certainly bolstering the things we already know we do in that part of our business um i think there's just nothing attached to the world of theater and like my dad um has uh my dad's been an entrepreneur his entire life um and is someone i would attribute to being um, an incredibly hard worker, which um, is constantly hard to live up to, and it's never going to happen for me. Um, <laughs> he would you call him a go getter? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, that man's like started like m- more businesses than, uh, frankly, he needed to, um, but has like is so driven um, and is just like a get up every day and go kind of guy to the point where I like. I mean, sorry, Dad, if you ever hear this. Like sometimes I think it's too much. Um, but, um, I, I do think, I wish I could take more of that page out of his book more often because he's just, he's got to drive like second to none as far as I'm concerned. But I mean, he works every day. He works seven days a week and he loves it. Like he just loves working. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's not, that's not totally me, but, um, coming back, like I bring that up because, you know, talk, like we talk about passive income a lot, um, not just necessarily professionally, but just like in life, like having passive income, I believe is, um, you know, the key to just feeling more comfortable in life and being able to do things. And so in business, trying to set up more avenues of passive income. And in the theater world, I don't think there's a lot of that because there's not just like, we don't sell a product that there's just like a constantly, it's like constantly streaming out and we're putting it on, you know, mm. uh, uh, the container and it's going out in the, the 18 wheelers and it's selling and we're selling volumes or anything like that. It's just, uh, do people want to come see comedy shows or not? Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like that I, I, I wish there was something there. I wish, and this is, again, it may just be a product of being in the world of theater. It's like, yeah, you know, I think the people who are really doing it well are like selling like, you know, little pieces of like screws that can only fit in certain like toilets and stuff like that and like their whole business is just like they sell x amount and it goes out and that's it and that's their whole business and they don't they don't worry about anything else mm-hmm. um because like outside of the selling of everything the other i mean the other hardest part of, especially about running a theater um and, but i'd say you know difficult for any business is people management it's you know a very it's a very very tough 
um, part of running a business. And I'd say like the thing that surprised me most in running a business is just how difficult people management is and how much time has to be put there. Uh huh. And, uh, you're, you're kind of like, um, I perceive you as being a kind of like empathetic person. So you're like, you're not the most readily like, uh, uh, easily disconnected from just like giving people tough feedback. Or are you an assassin? <laughs> no, no. Um, I I really did have to learn a lot um, about that because in terms of like being able to have those conversations that have to like being being able to have tough conversations um, is a very specific skill. Um, and not doing it, sure, sometimes it feels like you know maybe you're putting off something um, that you're like like could be considered painful or difficult, but not having the skill at all will lead to like things just getting absolutely out of hand. Mm -hmm. Um, and at first I really had to rely on other people to help me do that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, with time I've learned how to, um, make time real for me. The, the way I have to do it is I have to make time because like there was, it felt like that there was never the right moment to be like, Hey, let's go have this chat or Hey, let's talk about this thing. Right. Um, and then, uh, with time I've gotten better at it now when, you know, I'm at the theater and I'm like, Hey, can we talk for a second? It does always put the fear of God into anyone that I ask that question. Uh -huh. Um, but, um, getting over that, you know, it's, it's made life just a lot easier in terms of like making sure people know where they're at. But, um, yeah, you're incredibly, you're, you're absolutely right. Like I will, I feel like I will go to the ends of the earth, um, for my people and to make, make, to find understanding and make things work, um, within reason. Um, but, uh, it's, um, it's still very tough. What do you do when you have, so you're like, okay, Hey, can we go talk, uh, about this thing? And mm -hmm. sometimes when you do this, people don't make it easy on you. They're like, sometimes they're not like, Oh, I know what you want to talk about. Uh, yeah, I was yeah. late for the thing or whatever. Sometimes you have that little, um, at least in my experience, sometimes there's like a tense moment where it's like, you have to like bring up the thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and it would be very easy for you to not to just be like, Hey, I just want to say good job, <laughs> you know, and like put it off again. Um, have you gotten better about getting over that, that moment when you like, you have to initiate the tough dis discussion and, uh, like, how do you get yourself to do that? Yeah, definitely. I've gotten much better at like finding it difficult has gotten easier and easier with time. And I think a large part of that for me early on was feeling like I, sh I, I just wasn't the guy. Mm -hmm. Like I'm just like, like Diana ran the business for 25 years. And here I am in my second year talking to someone who's been on the team for 15 years because they've, they're constantly showing up late. And it's just like, I have to like you, the, the, the becoming of that person was very hard in those days. Um, but the way I frame it now and the way I, I look at it is this, my job is less about being in that time is less about being a, the business owner. And it's a lot about like managing a community and realistically stand looking at from standpoint of being like the shepherd of the theater. It's like, you doing this is bringing down all of this trust that we are building within the system of one another. Mm -hmm. um, and when I, when I started looking at it from that direction, as opposed to like Benji, the boss has to lay down the law. It really helped me in kind of being like, it's not my job. Like, I'm not trying to say like, 
I'm the person that just has to give rules all the time. I'm the, what I'm trying to the way I'm framing it is I'm someone who has to protect the integrity of this theater and how people feel about being here. And part of that is making sure that everybody's living up to um, the same standards and um, participating in the the things that we agreed upon are going to make this theater successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in approaching it that way. Um, and saying that to the team as well has made a huge difference in terms of like, like knowing what my approach is, I think is healthy for them. Um, and feeling good about where I'm coming from with this, as opposed to like someone I'm very, I'm still very anti, like having to like lay down any sort of like quote unquote punishment or like rules. Um, and I guess in that it is helpful because people trust me that I'm not trying to do something just for the sake of doing it mm-hmm. um, versus like trying to actually help the theater, like continue on and move on. Yeah. Uh, I just have a couple more questions. One is, uh, are you restricted at all by like the license by comedy sports to, are you required or restricted from presenting any specific kind of like show? And the reason I ask is, is like, could you say like, Hey, every Saturday night at, eight or whatever our comedy sports show happens and uh the next day we're going to like you can buy for five dollars like a live stream of that show or something like is that kind of stuff part of the agreement or not no really and it's interesting because like i meet once a year with all of the comedy sports managers um and we we discuss things like this and and really no um the there's no limits to doing other things in terms of like selling a comedy sports show I'm going to say, like, to sell a live recorded comedy sports show right now, I don't think, I don't think I could, I'm going to say. Because you definitely could with, like, Bard's Bounty, I assume, because that's, like, Yes. Any of my other shows, and, like, that's what I was going to say, the license doesn't restrict me doing anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, the question sort of becomes, like, for me especially, um, and this is a topic for another day, but like running comedy sports and comedy sports being the name on everything, when you do want to run another show, and let's say it's like the you know rated R late night show and stuff like that, running branding for that kind of stuff can be difficult from time to time, but not nothing restricted. But um, you really don't want your like you know kind of edgy. Uh, F-bomb humor to to come over into your comedy sports because people are going to be like, I thought I was coming to see like a clean show with my seven-year-old. <laughs> right. I mean, to um, some degree, you're that's also a scheduling thing, right? Because those tend to be later at night. And Yeah. Exactly. Also, it has the word, your show has the word beer in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and the other thing I want to ask you is tell me some fun stuff about Japan. Oh, man. Uh, what an incredible country, first of all. Um, I what an incredible people the Asians. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. Don't you agree? Um, <laughs> I I just Japan had just for so long been a place I wanted to visit, um, and I think like it was everything I wanted and more in terms of going. Like um, we we just had such a fun time. Like the first three or four days we were there we landed in tokyo but then we went up to nico in um central japan and then like took a car and went into the mountains and stayed in like an air like an airbnb type place uh but just a and b not an airbnb unrelated like an actual ryokan um where like we were staying with them and they were cooking uh meals for us and like just like we were in a like spa out in the the mountains 
Um, and that alone was just such a fantastic like chance to experience just like traditional Japanese culture. And so like during the day we were out visiting like shrines and doing things like that. Um, and then uh, in the evening and in the mornings, like having these homemade meals cooked for us, that was like, um, I mean, just absolutely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, the, the lady that ran it was probably, I think she told us she was 64 years old. She's like the name and the heart of her own business and does literally everything. Like she's like making beds, cooking. Um, and we just became like best friends with her in her time. And she was so gracious with like showing us around. And like, um, I mean, at 64 years old, like my, my dad has trouble using his phone. Um, and she didn't speak much English, but she, she was very good with using her phone for, uh, Google translate. Mm. So we were constantly like, uh, communicating via Google translate and like, um, just had the best time, but I'd say like, you know, coming back into like Tokyo, um, the things that amazed me were like, there's no trash cans, like in any of the major cities. I mean, there are trash cans, but they're very sparse, but all of the cities are immaculately clean. Uh-huh. And it just kind of speaks to the sense of just like pride that, um, Japanese people carry with themselves and that it's like, everyone's held to a a higher standard in terms of personal responsibility. Um, I know there's been a lot of popular videos going around right now of how like Japanese children like are basically left to like go to school on their own Mm -hmm. and like travel subways and stuff like that. And it it just, you get this sense of a, a pride that's met with like, like the rubber meets the road with just like the way people handle themselves and they, um, get everything done. And it's just, it was just absolutely fabulous. How many pieces of trash did you throw on the street just to see what people would do? (laughs) (laughs) No, like I was, it's legitimately scary. Like it it got to the point where like, I was like carrying trash in my pockets. Like I'm holding like, cause you know, I'm sweating. Um, the, the weather was like between 50 and 70 every day. So I shouldn't, um, have probably have been sweating as much, but I'm a sweaty person. So, I mean, I'm like just drinking water and Picari sweats, which are like <laughs> right. their equivalent of like Gatorade, I, I'd say like electrolyte waters. Um, and so like, you know, I'm like downing three of those, uh, and then I'm looking constantly for a trash can and just like not going to throw it anywhere else. I wouldn't anyway, but just like there is a certain little like elevated, like, oh, I've really got to find a place for this and the <laughs> right place. Cause there's also like, they burn all of their trash. So like, there's like seven different ways to throw your trash away. It's oh. not just like plastic and, uh, or like recycling and trash. It's like all sorts of different things. Oh, wow. Uh, what combustible was, and non-combustible. Uh, aside from the B and B, what was the best meal that you had there? In Kyoto, we went to um, uh, a ramen place. Uh, I forget the name of it, but it, it had uh, the chef had had a number of Michelin stars. Oh, um, and so that was really cool, and um, uh, it was absolutely wonderful ramen. Um, I'd say my favorite food experience was also in Kyoto, though, and we just went to their main like um, like raw market and like just walked up and down and ate like raw fish and just like every little station had like its own little thing. And so we were just like, you know, uh, just up and down two or three times trying everything. Um, and like there were like squid octopus, um, with like eggs in their head and stuff like that. And like, it's <laughs> like all this, like really like freaking awesome stuff. Um, the, the, the thing I found scariest was like, 
Like I didn't mind eating like little fish or anything that like, you know, you can get like a little packet of them, but there is like a certain size to when a fish is like, like they're selling you like, you know, like a fish like this big and you're like, am I going to eat this whole thing? Cause then you're like working on bones and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, and from what we could tell, nobody was scared to just put the whole thing down bone and all. Oh. And that really that like from a choking standpoint alone, that really threw me off. But um, <laughs> it was very kind of that was harder to navigate again, because it's like if you want to get fish. You can eat the fish, but then if there's no trash cans, you're holding like fish bones in your hand. <laughs> you got to eat them. <laughs> yeah. So you got to eat it. What, what happens um, if so. you go to, uh, to Japan and you don't eat seafood? I'd say you really have to get over it. Like, oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, like, um, well, what was nice about my travel partner and I is um, both of us agreed before going. We we're like, hey, um, anything that gets presented to us, let's just like go for it. Yeah. Let's not like it, in some parts, just like out of fear of not wanting to be rude, but also like we're going to travel. We're going to try different experience. Like being picky seems like it's the wrong way to go to Japan. Yeah. Um, and, um, that I think that we were rewarded with that by having a bunch of really fun, uh, and different experiences. I mean, you were rewarded by walking around with fish bones in your hands. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Hey, I mean, we avoided it though. Um, because we, again, we were kind of sizing up the fish, right. To be like, all right, can we just put this whole thing down or what? So you've tried, you, like you came to LA, you took a UCB thing. You, Mm -hmm. you were at fringe last year Yeah, and you, um, saw some stuff and like you were inspired. You you did some shows with Comedy Sports Manchester. Yeah. So this Japan trip, how can this Japan trip inform your comedy sports business? Interesting. Um, so we actually um, had the opportunity to go to um, some theater and I went and saw a Kabuki theater show. Oh. Um, which, um, and we, we did two, we had two sort of theatrical experiences. One um, in Kyoto was like their cultural museum puts on like an hour long show. That's like a taste of like a lot of traditional Japanese art, uh, performance art. So like music, theater, um, comedy. Um, and, uh, and then we went to like a traditional Kabuki theater show, um, which like was all in Japanese. And so we got, and, and they didn't have like translations or anything, but they did give us like a heads up ahead of time and a little thing to read. And basically it's this story that's like a very, very long story and they don't tell the whole thing. They, um, they just tell like certain parts of it and give you certain acts. But in like further reading, like the way that the, the tale is interpreted is always different. It's not like, there's not like one set upon way to tell the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the conclusions that are drawn are different, etc. So like the first, if it's a three hour show, the first hour, hour 15 or more is like, traditional i'd say a traditional theatrical performance um and then there's like a 30 minute break and everybody had like brought their food or like had ordered food um and it was a very very long break and we thought it was over for a while um and then they came back in and instead of doing like telling more of the story that way they told it through like choreo uh, choreography of uh, dance of sword fighting of um kind of like Uh, I mean, a little bit of comedy, but yeah, I'd say mostly like dance. Um, And like they came out and did some comedy in the way of like they had this one guy who could like do different masks and have like a really cool talent with like taking the masks off and Mm. showing like the different characters and stuff. And basically retold different parts of the stories through these like different means. And I thought that was fantastic. But um, 
I'd say my biggest takeaway coming back to like comedy sports was like when we went and saw the other show in their comedy portion, while not being able to speak any Japanese, it was very clear to me that the choices that they were making in the manner in which they were speaking was like sincerely over the top and like the facial expression carried so much of the comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it like, we were, I, we got front row with it. So that was super fun. Um, but we were just like busting out laughing because like the control that like the, the like quick story was like um, this, this Lord uh, kept being mad at his two help, his two like assistants because they kept drinking all the sake every mm-hmm. time he left. So like um, in the, they tied one of them, they tied their hands behind their back and the other they tied to a piece of bamboo, like with their arms out. And so like he comes in and he's like all mad and like, don't do it again. I'm tying you up. And he leaves. And then they spend like 15 minutes, like doing all of this good physical comedy around mm-hmm. like getting the sake open. And a lot of it's like improvised, um, except like they are actually like tied to the things. Mm. Um, and just they're like, Strength of body and strength of just like connection with one another and like really selling how goofy and the energy I just like it was phenomenal. And I feel like in improv, we take so much out of like, like, in a lot of ways, I think if you were to come do that in the wrong setting, like people would think it's like maybe corny. Yeah. But the way that it was brought so sincerely and like that was the intent behind it. It was like, it was so funny. And I think it says a lot to like, how you can bring something into a character um, and not have to understand anything they say, um, but using your body language and your expression to sell comedy is um, super underrated. And I think in short form would go a really long way. Yeah. I mean, I feel like in improv people are often too focused on the dialogue. Yeah. And uh, it sounds like these guys have a level of commitment as well. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Well, that sounds awesome. I look forward to the, uh, uh, short form Kabuki show you're going to have at, <laughs> at comedy sports. Uh, so I will be in Houston on April 13th yeah. at comedy sports, Houston in Edo. You got it. Uh, doing uh standup comedy with my friend, Tim Murray. It should be a very fun night. Uh, we just booked a guy named Aaron Michaels who is connected with a show in Houston called the gay agenda. He's nice. going to be hosting the show doing about five minutes at the top and uh, introducing us. Um, so, Tim's going to do about 25, 30 minutes. I'm going to do about 25, 30 minutes. And then we're going to do a little audience Q&A kind of fun chit-chat type thing. And then Benji can throw in some questions too. Yeah, and we've got tickets. Where can we find tickets? We can find them on your Instagram. That's right. I'll put them in the description for this um, podcast episode. Uh, and they'll also be in my link tree, linktree. Uh, link.tree slash Chris Grace. Uh, they will be on my Instagram. Yeah, I'll have them up. I'll have it available at CSEHouston.com too. I know I've got a link. I was just thinking about this. I'll make sure it's visible. Um, I may need to actually get something from you. We'll, um, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll make sure you can get them there too. But uh, go to uh, Chris's Instagram. Handle yeah, for sure. or Comedy Sports Houston uh, where it still says Benji and the Beer Babies on April 8th. <laughs> Uh, but also in the meantime, the, the Saturday after that Saturday, April 15th is the first Bard's bounty, which sounds really fun. Hey, um, Benji, and you're doing a show in Austin too, right? Uh, on the 15th, I'll be doing a, um, workshop performance of Chris Grace as Scarlett Johansson. I can't wait for that. Um, and then I will do that in Houston at some point so that my family can see it. 
<laughs> but Benji, you're one of my better friends in comedy. I've, oh, I've, you almost said best friends. Yeah, that's it. well, my husband's my best friend. I can't say that's anybody. right. That's right. That's right. I would say you're one of my best comedy friends. You're one of my best friends too, Chris. You and and uh, I've actually enjoyed very much the last couple of years. We've gotten to know each other, and uh, I mean, hopefully, we'll see you in Edinburgh Fringe this year as well. There, you, there is certainly a hope for that. Um, I'm working on it. Yeah. Um, but in the meantime, please go check out Comedy Sports Houston. Any other uh, like socials or th- anything they should go to? Yeah, at CZ Houston. I mean, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Find us on a uh, uh, Instagram. I think especially we're putting we're trying to put a lot more effort effort into. So at CZ Houston or at Comedy Sports Houston. Awesome, Benji. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, pal. That was my interview with Benji Cooksey, and. Uh, As we mentioned in the interview, I will be down there on Thursday, April 13th, which is about a week and a half from today, doing stand-up comedy with my friend Tim Murray. Please come check it out. It should be a lot of fun. You can go to Linktree slash Chris Grace, or you can go to um, my Instagram at Chris Grace Comedy or Tim's uh, Instagram, which I believe is at TMurray06. And uh, yeah, other than that, I've just been working away... um, As I mentioned in the interview, I am full-time now as a software engineer. I'm also creating the next version of my solo show for Edinburgh. I'm doing stand-up. I'm really doing a lot, you guys. And uh, again, another week has gone by. Checking for signs of burnout. Don't see any real signs yet. Um, Although I I did... I have been conking out really early at night. (laughs) Um... Yeah, I feel good. I feel, I almost feel a little, uh, I'm starting to feel a little trepidatious that I'm having like a run of good fortune. Things are going well. I did a show this past weekend at uh, an event in Palm Springs. That show went well. It's almost like, when is the other shoe going to drop? And of course, inevitably the shoe drops in life right so then you know i'll look back at this recording and be like ah look how naive i was before it all happened but um i have been thinking lately about how okay i depending on your perspective this might be a depressing thing to say but it's simply inevitable that you will have a certain amount of suffering in your life um and i realized that by thinking along these lines i'm essentially like recreating thoughts that the buddha had because there was a thing about, you know, in Buddhism, which is like life is suffering and desire is suffering because you desire things and then you can't have them or you get them and you lose them. So you should remove attachments to, des- to desire. And that's not exactly what I'm thinking about. But I'm thinking about how there's just there's a base level of inevitable suffering that everyone goes through. And I almost think... Maybe it's just a good philosophy to just not increase that base amount for, you know, like to increase it by the smallest amount possible for the fewest number of people possible. And um, so that's what I've been thinking about lately, you know, just like just try to create, not add to someone else's burden, let's say, because they will have a burden, even if they're having a great life right now, everything's going great, they, they, they something will knock them off kilter inevitably that's just life so why do we need to like add to that like what i mean is like life just 
in terms of its own consequences, uh, totally separate from human uh, will, uh, those situations will come up. So you don't need to add to them for other people, right? So that, I was thinking about this. Then I realized that this can be a kind of um, down or so, like, it, like it can be sort of um, existentially fatalistic way to look at things, right? But if you apply this concept that you shouldn't uh, add to other people's suffering, that kind of includes the way that you are with them. So... Um, in one sense, you could apply to the fact that you don't need to remind people that there's a base level of suffering in their life. But more importantly, I was just thinking, so, sometimes I think like it takes energy to not let yourself get pulled down by the slings and arrows of life, you know? And this thought sort of buoyed me up, which is like, hey, you know what? There is a value to seeing life in a positive way merely for the fact that by doing that you will not be adding to someone else's suffering um, you know you can take a burden off of other people by not being a drip around them uh, so I don't know a lot, you know I'm sure something something's going to go wrong this year like I'm having a good year it's like it feels like a good year so far um, I'm sure something's going to go wrong <laughs> Uh, and I'm just kind of waiting to see what it is, but like it, things are going smoothly now. I'm enjoying myself. I feel like my creative projects are like moving along. I'm really enjoying doing this podcast. I'm getting to talk to all sorts of people that I am interested in talking to and I'm learning a lot and all that. So, um, you know, and I fucking won a stand up comedy contest. Hey, so that's the, uh, that's where I'm at this week. Uh, I hope you're having a good week. I hope that I have not added to your suffering. Um, and I hope that, uh, you have a good day and that you, uh, you know what, go and have a nice sandwich this week. Let's all go get a good sandwich. I'm going to get a French dip. That's what I'm going to get. So, um, I'll see you next week. Uh, if you're in Houston, come out on April 13th to the comedy sports theater and see me and Tim Murray do stand up. If you're in Austin, Texas on April 15th, you can see me do a workshop presentation of my Scarlett Johansson show at the Fusebox festival. I believe it's at the crash box venue. And, uh, then I'll be doing some stand up when I'm back here in LA and then really gearing up towards, uh, revising the show for Edinburgh, but also, um, uh, I'm potentially doing a Hollywood fringe run as well. So that's it. Uh, thank you so much for listening and you'll be hearing from me very soon. You've been listening to the Chris Grace show. Today's episode was edited and produced by Chris Grace. Email the show at podcast at chrisgrace.com or join the community at club.chrisgrace.com. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Chris Grace Show. I'm your host, Chris Grace. See you next time.